Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today's episode is with Lindsay Lee, Managing Member of Authentic Ventures. Founded nearly six years ago, the core of the firm's mission is their inclusive, value-centered network of subject matter experts who help drive outsized value to Authentic's portfolio founders. In this episode, we discuss the competitive advantages of building diversity-focused networks, how they operationalize these networks, and how he views the art of portfolio construction. Let's get into this episode to hear all of this and more. This week's episode is brought to you by Adura Advisors, who I've worked with closely for over a decade and is home to hundreds of private equity and venture fund managers. As someone that's personally very discriminated when it comes to service quality, I found Adura to be a firm that pairs best of breed service with the type of technology demanded by today's fund managers and LPs. Through their internally developed software platform, FundPanel.io, fund managers and LPs can easily manage reporting, capital calls, and performance tracking. Regardless of whether you're an emerging manager just starting out, or you're a seasoned firm looking to supplement an internal team, Adura's back office solution rises to the challenge of supporting your firm's specific needs. Listeners of Venture Unlocked receive the first quarter of management company services free with promo code UNLOCKED. To redeem, email dev at aduraadvisors.com. That's D-E-V at A-D-U-R-O-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot com. Hey, Lindsay, so great to have you on the show. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Thanks for having me on. You've had a variety of different experiences spanning from being an operator to public market investing to working at a family office. And I think at the family office, Focus on early stage investing. And then you started Authentic about six years ago. Why did you decide to uh, take on investing full time and focus on seed? I've gotten to a point in my career where I looked at that segment of the market and felt like there was just a lot of opportunity to use my network and a lot of the relationships that I'd had to. Yeah, some positive effect. Uh, I like the fact that in the seed and early stage world, while there was a lot more unknowns and things arguably are a lot more chaotic, it was also the case that you could take a much longer term view um, on individual companies and businesses and industries. And, you know, I think it was really the first time that I started to think about the tremendous. impact that networks had in terms of how you fit all the puzzle pieces together um, to build something great. What was that transition from public and micro cap investing to privates? And were there any insights that you gleaned from doing that type of public investing that you thought would be applicable for private, which on the surface seems like a very, very different business? But I'm curious on how that transition happened and exactly what did you feel like the opportunity was? The through line between both uh, has to do with the framework for evaluating companies and industries and how to sort of think about uh, liquidity and sentiment in particular. So I think as a public market investor, Uh, You're doing a lot of bottoms-up fundamental analysis on companies uh, based on this information that exists. The rigor that's involved in that in in terms of not just financial analysis, but thinking about 
competitors, thinking about how the industry is taking shape, uh, thinking about market size, and especially growth uh, and how growth tends to manifest and be valued by other investors. One of the things that I, I learned uh, as a public market investor in particular is just how important sentiment is in terms of how companies are ultimately valued, right? It's extremely difficult to invest in companies that may be actually doing something really interesting and important, but the universe of investors is small and sentiment is weak. Those just tend not to ever work <laughs> or, not, or, or not for very long periods of time. And I think there's a real difference there between sort of being a momentum investor, um, which, which I'm not or never was, but I do feel like understanding that growth investors tend to be pretty imaginative in the way that things are valued uh, when certain things are true. And I think as a investor in early stage companies, it's useful to have a similar kind of mindset as a company and the market that it's creating in some cases emerge. You know, you're asking yourself if the following things are true, how are other investors and the larger universe of investors uh, likely to think about this company in this space? If it's got, you know, the following growth characteristics and ultimately many companies, uh, well, the successful ones anyways, will have a public market exit, right? So if you sort of think about having some understanding of what public market investors are going to think six, seven, eight years down the pipe, I think is useful when you're looking at early stage companies. I want to come back to this a little bit later when we do talk about portfolio construction, how you think about the initial check into these companies. But it is interesting to hear the overlap of skill set with public investing and early stage investing when you think those are different. But there are examples, you know, folks like Roger Ehrenberg and Bill Gurley, who came from more hedge or public market investing or analyzing to being successful early stage uh, investors is very clear that there is some overlap with that skill set. Moving to 2016, you moved from the family office to start Authentic. What was the opportunity that you saw that made you want to start your own firm? There were a number of different things that I saw as I thought about the kind of firm that I wanted to create um, and the landscape as it existed. If you think about the way that venture operates, it tends to be the most network-driven business that I know of, certainly within alternatives. And by that, I mean, if you compare it to other asset classes, think about real estate or private equity, those asset classes, I think, typically have lots of people that are involved in the value chain that you know play some role in connecting opportunity to capital. Right, you've got brokers and bankers and consultants, and the firms tend to be bigger, different layers of management. Venture just doesn't work that way. Um, it is ninety-nine percent of what determines who gets met with and who gets invested in is do you know one of the GPs or not? <laughs> I mean, I, I just thought that was a really kind of unique dynamic. 
it's also worth noting that, you know, until really four or five years ago, most firms were very flat. And so it really was this sort of binary system. Do you know the partners or not? Now, some firms have started to hire kind of junior ranks of folks, um, but that's a relatively recent phenomenon as well. And so what you're left with is a market where having the right kinds of relationships just tends to play an enormous role in uh, determining you know, who gets a look, right? <laughs> who's going to be considered uh, and who's going to be given the benefit of the doubt. And if you, as I looked at the composition of many of these firms, um, they're overwhelmingly four or five white guys. <laughs> I mean, that was certainly the, the case for, for most of the firms that, that I knew. And, and I think that if you think about that, I mean, many of these people are good friends of mine and great people. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that most people's networks look like they do. And so, you know, as I, as I consider what the impacts of that were, I mean, it, it sort of wasn't su- all that surprising about what the data was, which is that less than 1% of all founders um, get uh, black or Spanish or uh, Hispanic uh, founders um, have access to venture capital money. No one should be surprised about that, just given the way the sort of system is is designed or exists as it, as it is today. And so I thought, boy, that's kind of interesting. Um, it feels to me like there could be a lot of really smart, qualified people who are being left out of that, of the equation. And that just doesn't make any sense, um, both as a as a black person myself and someone who is really interested in making sure that other people that look like me have an opportunity. And frankly, as a, as an economic actor, I just, I looked at the sort of commercial opportunity there and felt like, boy, there could be a really interesting one. If you could figure out a, a smart, authentic way of engaging a broader group of people, I think you'd have a, more interesting engine for generating great deal flow and and helping companies succeed. And so let's talk about that engine. And it sounds like from what you just described, the engine is the network that you've built of, you know, people that are advisors, operators, maybe other VCs. How did you go about building that? And maybe even before going into that part of the answer, what exactly is the authentic network that you bring to founders? First of all, just to describe the network, we have really built a, a network of operators, a lot of engineers, product managers, designers, people who work you know, throughout the organization have different areas of functional expertise uh, as part of our network. In addition to those folks, um, we've got lots of folks who are kind of top of the food chain, senior execs in, in companies other investors, as you mentioned. The idea behind the authentic network is sort of building a a group of people who are going to be invested in our company's success. And so we tried to be really thoughtful at the outset about focusing on people who had relevant networks and skills um, that could give our companies uh, a great chance of succeeding once we made the investment. And prior to that investment, 
help us uh, as a firm source great ideas from A plus people in their networks and vet those ideas as you know we have things coming through either from the network directly or from other sources. Um, we want to make sure that we've got a better system for evaluating uh, new ideas. And so could we architect a universe of relationships and people who would take a real interest in, in being helpful? And, you know, what's interesting, and I think what we've, we've found is that as we built our network, we've really over-indexed to women and people of color. Um, just based on what I talked about earlier, we feel like there's such a big opportunity there. And we also feel like many people, if you're from one of those communities, as I am, I think invested and interested in a whole different way in trying to help other people that look like you. And so we think that's powerful. Um, and, you know, we've been so gratified by just all the amazing people that we've been able to engage with, um, over the last four years. We have seen, you know, venture firms looking to differentiate through adding unique value to founders and going back to the days of first round, which removed itself as the hub of all interactions between portfolio companies, created a community approach, and Jerison building an in-house team of experts and advisors to help founders. We've also seen folks like yourself that don't have those people in-house but are still leveraging a network. But what I think makes your model unique, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is how you formally put that network together in a way that actively engages with the founders and adds value in a variety of ways consistently. Over the last four or five years, as you've built out this network, how do you operationalize that? We're still learning. We're still developing. We're still trying to raise our game uh, on that front. Our first fund was pretty small. And as a result, I think our ability to put uh, significant human resources behind doing all the things we wanted to do operationally to engage with all of these amazing people, I think was more limited. As we've scaled our asset base, you know, we're leaning into that. Um, just hired a community manager this year to help with that. But at a high level, if you think about what our goals and objectives are, it's really to stay in front of these folks and try to help them wherever they are in their journey. We know as we work with founders, we don't take a formulaic approach. And by that, I mean different founders need different things at different points in their life cycles of their business. The same is true for many of these folks in our, uh, in our community. Some of them are rising stars, execs in whatever companies that, that they might be in. Maybe the thing that, that we can be most helpful to those people with are maybe they've got an interest in being on boards, public or private. We've got lots of great relationships there and have been able to make lots of introductions. At the other end of the um, scale, you're an individual contributor and you've been at Facebook or Google or Airbnb for a few years and you know, you're trying to think about what's next. Maybe operationally, the thing that we're doing is staying in front of these people and trying to help them connect them to new opportunities um, or mentors. So there's a lot of different ways that I think we show up for people in our network. 
Let's pull this thread a little bit more and look at this notion of network as a differentiator. It's clear that your main part of your thesis is looking at this network very differently than maybe other venture firms that have built an informal network and instead having a network of highly engaged, highly focused people that help on all aspects of your firm from investing to sourcing to helping you build you know, great relationships with the founders. Also, I, I'd like to understand, it. are there things that you do specifically to make sure that that engagement level is high? Are there incentives built in there? And if so, what are they? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it takes a few different flavors. One, I, I don't want to skip over the fact that many people in our network are women and people of color. And, and I think as a result, are motivated to be helpful for non-economic reasons and, and just deeply care about seeing other people that look like them be successful. And I think that's powerful. It's, a, it's an important uh, distinction. The second is we still care uh, very much about keeping and frankly rewarding folks in our community and network who are particularly helpful and active. And so we carved out carry to both organizations, including some nonprofits um, and individuals who are active either as advisors or just active people in our in our network or community that are playing a role in helping our company succeed and showing us great deal flow. So I think it's the combination of those things that we sort of rely on to make the whole system work. I want to shift to how this translates to your portfolio construction itself. I always think about operationalizing a huge network and then also having a portfolio of like 60 companies. How do you actually manage that in a practical way? Tell us a little bit about your portfolio construction strategy and how it ties into this network model that you've built. I'll start by saying that we have a pretty concentrated portfolio model, um, much more concentrated than in many seed and early stage firms. That's largely a result of a couple of different things. One, I guess just my personal preference and, and style, uh, which is I've always been someone who's enjoyed having a small number of things that I'm deeply focused on and engaged in. I think it increases the odds that we're likely to be the most engaged, most knowledgeable people in the cap table. Um, you're going to spend more time on those kind of relationships, you know, with your founders. It creates a different set of risk, right? I mean, we sort of obviously understand and don't necessarily quibble with all of the academic arguments that one can make about model portfolio theory and, you know, the appropriate level of diversification. But for me, I found other ways to manage some of those risks and really like the idea of having a relatively small number of companies that we're invested in. So in fund two, we'll have a total of about 20 investments that we make. And uh, I'd, I'd expect about half of those to become uh, much larger over time as we kind of lean into our winners. Um, the other thing I'll say on that is that by having a smaller number of companies, I think we can focus the energy of our network 
a little bit more potently in a small number of things. Um, so that's the way that we think about the world. So given that concentrated portfolio and investing with conviction in, in a smaller group of companies per fund, it would speak to at least presumably a higher ownership threshold than a fund that makes a lot of different bets and writes smaller checks at the outset. What type of ownership do you look for at the initial check? And assuming it, let's call it a traditional seed investment that you make. Yeah, we target uh, eight to ten percent um, for a typical seed stage investment. Uh, I don't know if there is such a thing <clears throat> anymore of what's typical. I think one of the things that um, we don't really struggle with, but uh, just observe, is that the labels mean less and less. <laughs> what is a seed stage? What is a Series A? What is a Series B? If we're trying to kind of normalize things, I would say we are looking for companies, uh, seed stage companies, where we can own somewhere around 10% with our first check. We have a slightly different or more nuanced way of thinking about how we get to that target ownership. I think as we talked about before, we have a more concentrated model. The upside of that is when things work out well, obviously, you know, it moves the needle a lot in terms of being able to generate our target fund returns. But the other thing that's true when you're running a more concentrated portfolio is that you can have your, your losers can, can be a lot more painful if you're not careful. One of the ways that we try to uh, manage for that is not necessarily optimizing for ownership with, our, with that first check. Um, we look at the universe and we say, you know, companies are staying in that seed stage longer. On average, if you look at the data, uh, it looks like there's been a rough, roughly doubling of that time frame. And so it's the rare instance that you've got to have that ownership on day one. Um, so many times that what we do is we write a smaller check. Maybe we're not at our 10% ownership with that first check. And then our goal in the first nine months or so is to really work our tails off, um, build a close relationship with the team, uh, find ways to kind of help them. And in the process, we're learning a ton about their business, their industry, further informing our view, did we bet on the right people? Is the product what we thought it was going to be? Is the market evolving in a way that we think is really interesting? And I think as we see those things, there are many instances where we go back to the team and, and say, hey, you know, ahead of your next round, we'd like to put some more money in. And, you know, they know more about us and we know more about them. And we're okay uh, in many instances paying more than we did with our first check, especially if the company's further along. But we think that's a, a reasonable way to sort of keep yourself out of situations where you've got significant ownership, um, you had to invest a lot, and the companies don't work out and there's, there's a high failure rate. Because we know... Many of our companies will fail. That's just the end of the market that we're, we're playing in. So we just try to be really thoughtful about how do we get to those target ownership levels. So it's interesting that you bring that up because what it 
leads me to think about is there's two ways you're investing at seed. One is you get your 10% ownership, likely at lower valuations, perhaps taking more risk in those companies, given that in Silicon Valley, at least, we're seeing seed valuations in that eight to 10 range versus you know four, five, or six in, in some other geographies. So maybe there's more risk you're taking in those areas. And there's other situations where you write a smaller check and then buy up ownership at that next round of capital, whether it's preemptive or you know, led by somebody else. How does that influence your reserve model? We're typically reserving between 2 and 3x, sometimes more than that, depending on the size of our initial check and the stage that we intersect with the opportunity. As I mentioned, um, one flavor of our investing is being early and investing you know, in that very first round of capital uh, because the team is incredible and we love the idea and all the stars align. In those situations where our first check is, say, a half a million dollars or so, uh, we're going to be reserving um, usually at least three times uh, what we put in the, the with that first check. In other situations, I mean, we, we give ourselves the flexibility to make some Series A and selectively some Series B investments as well. And I'd say um, if the checks are larger and the companies are further along, our reserve ratio tends to decline uh, just to keep the overall portfolio construction where we want it to be. But we think it's important to have some flexibility. Uh, Going back to just my experience, um, both as an investor in public companies and in private ones, one of the things I think is so important is never forgetting that being opportunistic is critical. And there are lots of times when something might seem a little out of spec having the courage and flexibility with the support, obviously, of your partners to be able to act on those things, I just think is is critical. Um, and so we definitely bake that into our model. Um, and it affects the way that we build our portfolios for, for our partners. I've heard that there's, in you know, conventional wisdom in ventures, there's a different muscle you flex between investing at seed versus series A and certainly investing at later stage. How do you reconcile that with your model of investing sometimes initially at series A and B, oftentimes at seed? Do you see certain skill sets that you have? This goes back to the original part of our conversation around being a public market investor initially. What do you see as the consistencies and theme that you exercise across each one of those stages? I mean, I'd start by saying that we are at an investment level much less concerned about the label of the round. Is this a Series A? Is this a Series B? Is this a seed stage company? Or does it have a seed label next to it? Then we are, what's the risk reward? If things work out, does this have the ability to return the whole fund given our projected level of investment? And can we really be confident that at a minimum, (laughs) we can make 10 times our money on something? You know, as an example, in fund one, we had a series B 
quote unquote company that had a pre-money valuation of $20 million. The company was doing $5 million in revenue. Do we care whether or not it's got a series B label? I don't think we should. Um, so I think that <clears throat> makes it a little bit more complicated in terms of being really formulaic about where do you draw the line? And then to what do the companies need? For the most part, when a company has raised a couple of priced rounds, so let's say they're a series B and not a series A, you know, a few things tend to be true, not always, but tend to be true. One is they've got a, a board that's established and there's usually a management team that is, you know, sort of coalescing, if not substantially defined. Now, if you're a series B and you're raising $50 million at a 200 pre, first of all, that's probably not in our strike zone. And secondly, I think you have different, <laughs> different assumptions about uh, how built out, you know, the company is. We're totally focused on what does the company need. And so our goal is to, again, show up for our founders and really serve them individually as we can and with this broader network. And so we absolutely agree with the idea that you use different muscles um, depending on where the company is. You know, we think that's totally appropriate. Um, we think companies need different things from you just based on where they are in their life cycle. But the final point I'll, I'll make is that I don't think that's necessarily always uh, indicated by whether it's a, an A or a B or a C. I agree with you. I I think nomenclature of rounds means less and less by the day. And it, it does definitely come down to where is the company from a stage of development and what type of value can you add as an investor, you know, given the network and the uh, domain expertise you have. Moving to one last point. So you have this concentrated portfolio that you built with Fund One that's performing well. You're moving into a Fund Two raise. Between the fund, what type of mile markers were, you know, prospective LPs looking at, you know, as you look to build AUM going into that second fundraise outside of markups, which presumably may be a little bit less because you have less shots at goal relative to those funds that do 30, 40 or 50 investments. What else did you hear from LPs that they were evaluating on? So I think... As you're going from fund one to fund two, one of the challenges that LPs have is you're often doing that at a point where not enough time has really elapsed to see how your fund one investment uh, has matured and developed. You know, the money just hasn't been in the ground long enough. As you well know, uh, things in venture tend to take a long time, especially when you're investing in at the early stage. I think the things that, that LPs tend to look for is, hey, did you do what you said you were going to do, right? So if you say you're going to invest principally in software companies, which is what we do, you said that this network was really important. Did you continue to build that out? And can you demonstrate some real specific case studies of how it was used to some successful effect based on what we know about, you know, all of the facts and the companies and sort of how they've executed. 
those are the things that LPs use to kind of triangulate. Um, you know, they also want to see that you're continuing to, to build the team, of course. And one of the nice things about scaling the asset base is you've got a greater ability to do that. They want to know that you're committed to that, of course, and uh, showing some progress there. You know, it's, it's, it's all of those things. Um, but the critical thing that um, I think LPs look for is stability in the team. They're looking for people who do what they say they're going to do. Much like the companies that we invest in, it's often difficult to sort of know how far along are we really. Um, but I think most LPs are pretty sophisticated in terms of being able to peel back the onion a little bit and really drill down and sort of understand what kind of potential exists in the portfolio that we've built, looking at our model and our strategy and extrapolating what kind of future success we might be able to have. And I think that's very consistent with what I see and what I hear from LPs is looking at a a number of different variables. There are a lot of people moving from a fund one to a fund two. And I know a lot of people are curious in with respect to what are the things that LPs look at. You're in a unique position in some ways because it's been four years since your fund one where you correctly point out a lot of people are coming back in 18 to 24 months, which doesn't leave a lot of time for the portfolio thesis to mature enough to look at things in a very reasonable and uh, mechanical way. So let's move to the final segment of our interview, and that's our heat check round, where I ask you three questions, rapid fire, starting with your uh, biggest career mistake and your learning from it. You know, I, I looked at a couple of companies that have gone on to be uh, really successful. One that sort of comes to mind is uh, Planet Labs, which I looked at pretty early. (laughs) Honestly, the team seemed amazing. The technology seemed really cool. The idea of low Earth orbiting satellites seemed to make a ton of sense to me. And I just couldn't wrap my head around um, the valuation at the time, which was high. And I think one of the things I learned from that, it sort of reinforces a guiding view that I have now, which is you should always be willing to pay for high quality companies uh, who are doing something really unique and really just have the ability to exhibit a super high level of growth and and be a leader in an interesting market. Um, Don't get tripped up by valuation because... It's surprising <laughs> how great companies can grow into those valuations. And as I talked about earlier, growth investors tend to be pretty imaginative about uh, how great companies can be valued uh, if they execute at a high level. Well, that goes to the saying of be disciplined, not dogmatic. That is something a lot of people have uh, told me in the GP universe. Speaking of GPs, is there an investor out there that you admire and if so, who is it and why? I really admire what uh, John Callahan and Phil Black have built at True Ventures. I think they've just done a really great job of building a, a firm that's sort of focused on a set of values, a way they want to show up to their founders, a, a real ethos 
So I think they've done uh, an amazing job. I think the way that that uh, Ben and Mark have executed their strategy at, at Andreessen and some of the things they've they've done, especially around just sort of engaging operators and really almost taking it's not really a private equity approach, but a sort of operationally intensive way of engaging with the founders that they've backed, I think is cool and interesting. It's it's hard not to, as, as I'm building my firm and trying to think about, you know, how do you create those relationships and uh, build a, a partnership that just knows how to execute at a, at a really, really high level. You know, I think Alfred and the team at Sequoia has just done obviously an incredible job just building an amazing brand and being good partners to the firms that they've backed. So, so many people that I, that I think I, I respect at different kind of stages and for different reasons. Final question. Now that you're five years into running your own firm, what advice, single piece of advice would you give an aspiring fund manager? Damien Dwin at Brightwood uh, gave a really interesting piece of advice, which was starting a fund is going to take twice as long and cost twice as much as you anticipated. And I remember when he said that, I, I don't think I fully grasped it. I thought, oh boy, you know, I, well, I know some people and, you know, I've got a, I've got a good investment record and this, that, and the other. It, None of it really matters. These are really hard businesses to start and they take a long time to get off the ground. And it's it's kind of a grind. You really are in the shoes of your founders as you know entrepreneurs and being a fund entrepreneur is hard, trying to get people to give you the benefit of the doubt and trust you um, to build a firm and build a portfolio. Uh, is 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 hard. I mean, it took us much longer than we anticipated to get our first fund off the ground, and we're so grateful to have amazing limited partners who were willing to give us give give us a chance to prove ourselves. Um, but finding folks like that is is really difficult. But I think it's worthwhile if for no other reason. The thing I love about my job is you know working with all these incredibly high potential people. And I think given our larger interest and passion about making sure that no one gets sort of left out, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor, (laughs) but twice as long, twice as much money, plan on that. That's great advice. It speaks to make sure you have love for the game because it's a long journey. It's a hard journey, but if done right, it can have immense rewards, both personally and professionally. Well, Lindsay, this has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate you being on the show again. Thank you, Samir. Love the great work you're doing. I really appreciate being on the show today. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Lindsay and Authentic Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 